If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Peter, be in chapter 3 this morning. Might as well mention it now. I'm going to prep you. You should read ahead for next week's passage. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3, and you'll start off reading that, and you'll be like, oh, 18, this is great. And you're like, oh, oh, what's going on here? And uh, so I appreciate your prayers as I said. I know some of you are probably reading that right now, and you're looking ahead, and you're like, oh, wow, that does get a little dicey there. And so I, it's just one of those pa- passages of Scripture that have all kinds of questions with them. So, so, so I appreciate your prayers as I prep in this upcoming week, and uh, I would encourage you to do some reading, uh, reading ahead, come with lots of questions, and Lord willing, next week we'll be in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. This week, though, we'll be in the previous uh, passage of 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 17. I'm going to start by reading in verse 8, and just to give a little background, we're finishing the uh, section where Peter has been giving instructions to the church body about what their excellent behavior should be like. He's going to transition in verse 13, which we're going to start with with, with, with today. And although he's been talking about suffering, he's going to transition for the next probably four four messages to in the rest of uh, chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4 to talking about how we're to respond to suffering. So I'm, I'm going to start, though, in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, which we looked at last time we were in 1 Peter, and then go up to uh, verse 17. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you, are, if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, come very humbled uh, and with ears that are open by your grace to hear what your word has to say to us. Father, we can't apply any of your word apart from our union with your risen Son. We thank you, Father, for the gift of the Spirit that you've given us, sealing us, but also enabling us through our union with him to obey. And we pray, Father, for understanding as we look at these verses. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have wisdom as we do go through suffering in this world. And yet, even as the text will, will, will make clear, we understand that we don't all suffer in the same way at the same time, the, how we suffer in America in a different way than, than they do in other parts of the world. And so, Father, we just want to uh, be transformed in the way that you want us to be. Lord, we want to apply, we want to be changing. And we pray, Father, that the saints this morning would be encouraged and those who don't know you uh, would find hope and peace in Jesus Christ by coming through him in faith. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last time in 1 Peter, we ended with Peter quoting from Psalm 34. And we see that in verse 12. Really, in most of your Bibles, you'll see that it is a quotation there from verses 10 through 10 through 12. I just, read, uh, I just read it on with verse 12 here. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Peter quotes this psalm to give these sojourning saints uh, uh, of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, confidence that God rewards righteousness. But I wonder how some of them were tempted to feel as they read this verse. It says that the eye of the Lord is toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. Face the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, they were going through suffering. 
Was the face of the Lord opposed to, to them? Was God listening to their prayers? When we are slandered for our commitment to Christ, when we hear of the persecution of God's people, it may feel, it may feel like God's face is, against, is not against those who do evil. We wonder, why are the wicked prospering? Why is this stage, why is this scene in God's time, why is it playing out the way that it is? And if we can ask that question, I wonder if our brothers and sisters around the world do even more so. As they are thrown into prison in communist countries or killed by Muslim militants or silenced in post-Christian Europe, or maybe even some of you here in this country mocked in local middle schools and high schools. Some of you have experienced being rejected by your families. And maybe you've never asked why. We know from Psalm 73 and many other psalms that the righteous ask why. Why are, why are God's people not blessed now? Why are we going through so much suffering? How are we to respond when we suffer for doing good? Well, in 1 Peter 3, 13, Peter transitions to this next large section where he answers that question, how are we to respond to suffering? Now, it's not that he hasn't already been, been answering that question. It's not that he won't do it past uh, this, the second half of chapter 4, but that's the, the major focus of this section. In 1 Peter 3, verses 13 and 17, we're going to see three responses God's people are to have when suffering for doing good. Three responses God's people are to have when suffering for doing good. So the first response is rest in God's plan while suffering for doing good. We need to rest in God's plan. To rest in God's plan. Peter begins, 1 Peter 3 verse 13, in this new section here. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And I would say, reading this, and I've read this many times, this seems like an unexpected path for Peter to take. See, Peter was aware that many whom he was writing to were suffering. He's spoken about that in, in this letter in chapter 2, verse 12. talks about them being slandered as evildoers. In 1 Peter 2, verse 19, he talks about how it finds favor or it gains re reward from God when for the sake of conscience a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 3, verse 9 it was our last time we were in 1 Peter, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Peter knew that the audience he's writing to were going through suffering. And so he, he, he asks them, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? And that transition is surprising to me. In fact, you'd expect Peter to raise his hand. Ooh, I can tell you. The Sanhedrin threw me, Peter, into prison and beat me. King Herod saw that the Jews opposed to the gospel got such a kick out of seeing James killed that I was thrown into prison. Someday, I don't know if Peter knew this, the Emperor Nero was going to kill me. Peter knew that there was many of them who were being harmed for doing good. So it may lead to a confusing question. So, Peter, are you saying we're not doing good? Like, like are you insinuating, Peter, we somehow are failing in doing good? That if we were more zealous in doing good, we wouldn't be harmed? The word zealous here is an intense word. It's a word we get zeal from in the Greek, the word we get zealot from. It's enthusiasm, it's fervor in doing good. And maybe you know someone who stands out to you in your life who is zealous for doing good. Someone as eager to, to, to fix a leaky pipe in your house as to have people over for dinner as to share the gospel. I've got a, 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 a friend from Faith Bible Church named Nathan, and some of you have met him. One of the most sacrificial people I know. He's someone who stands out as zealous for good. He loves everyone. I mean, you would just know that this is one of the most loving people you have met. And, and he will serve in, what, in whatever way, as quick to, to serve physically as to share the gospel. He's just this unified whole of zeal for doing good. Now, Peter's 
point here, and, and I think that those pictures are, are valuable, and we should be zealous for doing good, but Peter's point here isn't that they weren't like that. He's not saying you aren't zealous for doing good. I believe Peter here, as much as I can understand it, is, is saying a proverb. In general, in general, when you are zealous for doing good, you're not going to go through harm. And I think our normal experiences testify to that. If you are zealous to do good to your neighbors, they are going to appreciate that often. They may not love your sharing the gospel with them, but they'll at least tolerate it if you're a good person, right? So most often, I think that that's the experience that many of us have as Americans. If you are zealous for doing good, you don't go through a ton of harm. It's the normal pattern of blessing that God in his grace has allowed. And really, it's what Peter has been encouraging them to. In 1 Peter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Do good. Devote yourself to doing good. And yes, he knows that they're going through harm now, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, yes, they are currently lying about you, but that over time they may observe your good deeds. And as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. And his hope was that they would become God's worshipers as they devoted themselves to, uh, as, as they devoted themselves to doing good. Because of, of their testimony, some would become God, God's worshipers. Peter understands that, that basically this is how the world works. In 1 Peter 2, verse 14, he talks about how God sends governors for the praise of those who do right. Even Wicked government officials or those who don't know the Lord will still honor those who do good. 1 Peter 3.1, he encourages wives that maybe as they're submissive to their husbands, that, that, that those who have, who have unbelieving husbands might become saved. And again, he's appealing to this, this common understanding that people recognize good. So what Peter says here, I believe, works as a proverb. In general, in God's common grace, even in this fallen world, we're surprised when those who are zealous for good are mistreated. Right? We're like, whoa, wow, that's, that doesn't seem right. Peter's not being simplistic here, and he's not being unsympathetic to the audience he's writing to. He's, he's not challenging them and saying you're not being zealous enough. He knows that this is going to elicit a response from them. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? Well, that's what we're trying to do here, Peter. So he encourages them next. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, Peter knows that some of those he's writing to are suffering for the sake of righteousness. He's mentioned it. But suffering is not guaranteed to the same extent in every location at every time. Some of you suffered when you came to Christ, even maybe being disowned by your families, but others of us didn't. Brothers and sisters around the world vary in their suffering even now this day. And perhaps that was true of Asia Minor too. We can't forget that the Peter's writing to churches spread across a very broad area, twice the size of California. Right? I mean, that people's experience was varied. So Peter's point here is suffering doesn't mean that God is opposed to you. Yes, he quoted from Psalm 34. And yes, God's eye is towards the, the righteous and his ear towards the, and, and his ear attends to their prayer. And, and the faith Lord is against those who do evil. But in this life now, we may suffer, but he encourages. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And it's not he's saying even if, like, there's, uh, there's a high likelihood you, you won't. Although in God's common grace, many of us don't go through as much suffering while we do good. But even if you do, if you're, if you're in that pocket, Christians, if you're in that group, if you're in that family, if you're in that, in that school, if you're in that job where you are suffering for doing good, you are blessed. So rest in God's plan. You are blessed. God approves of you, and that's the idea behind blessed. God approves of you. 
He, he, he's smiling at you. You will be forever blessed by him. This is an honor. Often the world will welcome our good deeds. Often it will tolerate our message. But if you are suffering for righteousness, whether because of the deeds that you're doing or because of the gospel that you're preaching, you can be confident of God's blessing. You can rest in God's plan. Whether your good deeds are welcomed by those around you or whether they are reviled. Either way, God approves of you. If you, now of course, that does not mean that that's how you make yourself right with God. But if you are in Jesus Christ and these good works that you're doing are because of your belief and obedience to him, it doesn't matter how the world responds to them. You are blessed even if you're persecuted. And, and, and I can't... Uh, I can't doubt that Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12 was going through Peter's mind. As Jesus, in the famous Beatitudes, as we call them now, said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. With the other Beatitudes, is blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And in this Beatitudes, is blessed are you when? We're going to go through different levels of suffering. But when you suffer, you're blessed. Your reward in heaven is great, Jesus says. So really what Peter's doing is reinforcing what he just quoted. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears do attend to their prayers. You will be blessed as you go through suffering. So be comforted that your good deeds will be rewarded by our Heavenly Father. It is true that at times our good deeds will be praised by men, but other times they'll be rejected. But we are to look for a blessing from the Lord. And that's how we rest in God's plan while doing good. In verses 13 and 14, the second uh, Instruction that Peter gives to those who are suffering. Exalt Christ when you are suffering for doing good. Exalt Christ when you are suffering for doing good. And we're going to see the, the, the core of this teaching in verses 14 and 15. But we'll, we will see it um, elaborated further in, in the rest of verses 15 and 16. So we'll start off in verse 14 and 15. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. Now notice in many of your Bibles you've got Cap, you've got capital letters there showing it's an Old Testament quotation. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I'm going to read a little of a summary background there by, 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 by a commentator named Thomas Schreiner just to get us up to speed of where Peter's quoting from. He's quoting from Isaiah 8, and I'll read these, these verses for you in just a minute, but I want to give a little, a little background first. So, the southern kingdom of Judah, and Israel was divided into two portions, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of the remaining tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah was threatened by the northern kingdoms of Israel and, and Aram. The threat filled King Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the rest of Judah with terror. But Isaiah promised that the Lord would preserve Judah. Pretty simple. There's a threat from the northern kingdom. From this other nation, King Ahaz is troubled. The people are afraid. I'm going to go back to quoting here. Judah and Ahaz were to respond by trusting in the Lord's promise. In Isaiah 8, verse 11 through 15, the Lord commands his people not to fear the plot hatched by the northern kingdom of uh, Israel. They should only fear Yahweh, the God of Israel, and put their trust in him alone. So that's a little bit of what the background was, was going on. The southern kingdom of Judah was in danger from the northern kingdom. God is encouraging them to trust in God alone. Now, I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 8, verses 11 and 13. And, you, and, and, and you'll see why. Isaiah 8, verses 11 through 13. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say, It is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. 
Now this is God encouraging the prophet Isaiah as Isaiah, as Isaiah prophesies to the people. The southern kingdom of Judah weren't supposed to fear what everyone else was fearing. Instead, they were to fear the Lord alone. And by doing that, Isaiah uses the language of regard him as holy. Now, all of this is going to come together here. First Peter 3.14, Peter, before he gets to this command to sanctify Christ or, or to exalt Christ, he tells them what not to fear in First Peter at the end of verse 14 of chapter 3. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And that's right out of quote of Isaiah 8. Don't fear the people. Literally, it's do not fear the fear of them. And that could mean either the things that other people are afraid of, or it could mean just don't fear them. But either way, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. Don't be stirred up. Don't be unsettled. Don't be thrown into fear. Don't fear what they fear. Don't fear persecution. And this is a good word for us today in America, where it is easy, depending on what kind of radio you listen to, to become very fearful. Maybe your fears are the fears of those around you. Maybe you share the fears of Democrats. Maybe you share the fears of Republicans. Your soul is getting fomented as you listen. Don't fear what they fear. Don't fear what they fear. Don't let your souls be troubled. Instead, your heart should be controlled. This is what Peter says, by a greater fear, by a comforting fear. And I know that that can be alarming words together, a comforting fear, but that's exactly what we have when we sanctify Christ as Lord. Um, In the beginning of verse 15, Peter continues, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. To sanctify and I think that many of us know this, means to set something apart, to kind of commit something to a, a, a holy purpose. If you wanted to, to sanctify something for the temple, you would wash it and clean it and devote it to, the, to temple worship. This is a, a different sense of that word. We see Peter's sense of this word in how Jesus teaches the disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. That's not a, a, a contemporary English word. It's, it's the same word sanctify. Sanctify your name. Holify your name. Set apart your name. Now, of course, when we pray that, we're not saying, God, make yourself more holy. God is as holy as he could, as he can be. He can't, it is his nature. He can't be more holy. But we can pray that he is recognized as holy, that he is treated as holy, that people respond to him as he deserves, that he gets the worship that he deserves. So Peter is saying, hollow Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set apart Christ in your hearts as holy. Exalt Christ. I think exalt is a great word for this whole section. Exalt Christ in your hearts as holy. Treat him as he is. Not just as as holy in that he's morally perfect, but exalt him in your hearts as sovereign. Exalt him in your hearts as king. Exalt him in your hearts as judge. Exalt him in your hearts as immortal. Have him as big as he is in your hearts. Let him evacuate all other gods in your hearts. Let him dispel fear from your hearts. Let him fill up all of your heart. And you can see how Isaiah 8.13 is just so powerful in Peter's mind here. He doesn't quote 8.13, but it's, it's, it's right there, and I, I'm going to read it again. And in fact, I'll, I'll pick up at, at, at uh, uh, chapter 8 of Isaiah, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to Go back, because you'll just see what Peter's doing here. In regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, okay, so, 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 and you are not to fear what they fear, or be in dread of it, which is what Peter quotes. And then this, it is the Lord, it is Yahweh of hosts, whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. But Peter doesn't quote that. This, this is amazing. He says, it is the Lord of, uh, 
You know, that, that, that is Isaiah 8.13. He says in Isaiah, uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Isaiah says you shall regard Yahweh as holy, and Peter says you shall regard Christ as holy. That's incredible. I mean, you, you don't need any other proof that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Yahweh in all of Scripture than this. For Peter just to, Peter as a Jew, just to roll into equating Christ as Lord with Yahweh from the Old Testament, saying, you know how he commanded they fear Yahweh? This is how we fear Christ. And, and, and he doesn't even blink an eye doing it. It doesn't mean that God wanted Israel in the Old Testament to shake with fear. It doesn't mean that God wanted them to run away from God. we got to get away from this God. It's the kind of fear that drives us to God, that, that drives us to listen to his promises, to take him seriously, to be in awe of him, to, 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 to take off our sunglasses and have our retinas blinded by him to care about his evaluation, to long for his commendation, to be amazed by his beauty. All of that is encapsulated by what it means to fear him. So instead of fearing opposition to the gospel, instead of fearing a knock at the door taking away the Christians, Instead of fearing the loss of rights, instead of fearing going to school where they're going to make fun of you for your commitment to Christ, instead of all of those kinds of fears, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Let him be the one that you regard as holy. When we suffer for doing good, we are to exalt Christ on the throne of Yahweh in our hearts. Christ sitting on the throne of Yahweh in our hearts. That's, that's just incredible to think about. The Christ of the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, Christ sitting on that throne in our hearts where he belongs. The heart is not only the center of our emotions. It's the center of our will. It's our control center from which every choice flows. In your hearts doesn't mean privately, like, like oh, I'm going to have Christ as Lord in my heart, but no one else is going to see it. It means centrally. It means in the core of who you are. The emperor Nero ruled in Rome, but Christ's reign extends to the heart of each of his people. So to hollow Christ in your hearts means to be locked in onto the sovereignty of Christ and onto the goodness of Christ and onto the trustworthiness of Christ and the covenant keeping of Christ. It's to lock in on his steadfast love and to have all of Christ push out fear. And brothers and sisters, as we look at a changing America, for some of us it's changing more than, more than for others. Some of us have already been experiencing this. Some of us are listening to the news and getting frightened. We need to have Christ to expel all that. We must respond to the potential of suffering, not with fear, but humble allegiance and holy exaltation. Now, Peter, I believe, is going to expand here the way in which we exalt Christ. So we exalt Christ by, by sanctifying him. By, 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 we exalt Christ by having him hollowed in our hearts. But we also exalt Christ by being by pointing to Christ. We exalt Christ by pointing to Christ. And we see that in the second half of verse 15. We exalt Christ by pointing to Christ. It says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And by God's grace, many of you who are saved here this morning are already ready. And that's how we need to be encouraging one another during the week. Because as we talk about who Christ is, I believe that many of you are all ready to do this just by what we've been doing here this morning. By what, we, what we've been doing in song. And by what we've been doing in God's word. Because you're hoping in him. Peter assumes that this hope in them is going to be visible. That the surrounding world is going to see this hope. He expects them not to be quaking in fear or dreading the future. These, these who are zealous for good works, they are unshakable. 
They are fearless worshipers of Christ. And he says, this hope in you, and that and it's plural. It's a, it's a hope shared by the saints. This is the hope among you. And we share that hope, right? We share that hope of, and we'll talk more about the hope. It is Christ. Now, he says that we need to be ready to make a defense to everyone. Now, that word defense is the same word that we get apologetics from. But I don't think that Peter is advocating here that we need to have a list of reasons ready why the Bible is the word of God or why we believe that the world was created by God or that Jesus rose from the dead, although that is great and, 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 and that can be valuable in conversations with people. It's your being able to explain why do you have this hope? As you go through suffering, why do you have hope? Why are you not falling apart? Why are you not trembling like the nations would tremble? And this hope, this, this defense is to everyone who asks, who looks at you and says, wow, you're, you're, you're zealous for doing good. You're going through suffering, and yet in the midst of the shame you're going through, you have hope. Why is that? So we have to give an account of that hope. The reason, the ground of our hope, the basis for our hope, kind of the logic beyond, behind our hope. And what is the logic behind our hope? It is none other than the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's talked about hope, and each of these verses will show us what this hope is. In 1 Peter 1.3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where does our hope come from? It comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is why we are those who have hope, because Christ rose from the dead. If someone asks you, why do you have hope? It's because my Jesus lives. Just imagine having that kind of boldness, that kind of confidence to answer that question as you are being mocked for your faith. That is conviction there. That is exalting Christ as Lord. That is sanctifying him in your hearts. 1 Peter 1.13, Peter said, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is another reason for our hope. Our hope is fixed on the revelation of Jesus Christ, on the return of Jesus Christ. This is why we have hope, because we know that the resurrected Lord is the returning Lord. That is why we can answer someone why we have hope, because our hope is tied to Jesus, Yahweh, become man who died for our sins, who has been resurrected, who is seating at God's right hand, and who is coming back. This is why we can share the gospel. It is great to educate ourselves a list of reasons why we believe the many things that we believe. But this is, this is honestly all the defense that you need. This is, this is why we have hope. This is our internal logic. Or 1 Peter 1.21 he talks about how through Christ we are believers in God. God who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. Our hope is in God because God raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory. Again, we, 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 we see that unity there. It is in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. Like God has spoken in his Son. We have hope because of Jesus resurrected from the dead, still living, still reigning, and returning. That's, that's the defense that we need. It's a devoted loyalty to the resurrected and reigning Christ. And so we defend our hope by proclaiming Christ as king, and that will separate us from the world. That is the hope that they need to see, that, that conviction as we go through suffering. So we exalt Christ by pointing to Christ. We exalt Christ with our, with, our, with our submission as well. And this really shouldn't be a surprise in the context of, of where we've been in 1 Peter 2 and 3. 
as he called upon us to be submitting to the government, as Peter called on us to be slaves to be submitting to masters, as he called upon wives to be submitting to their husbands. Now he's going to call on all of us to be submitting to Jesus Christ. And he uses two words here, gentleness and the other one, reverence. Gentleness and reverence. And he's used both of these words in ways that wives were be were to be submissive as well. Now, 1 Peter 3, 15. So Peter's continuing on. How do we sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and, and reverence. And you can see in probably most of your Bibles, there's a little n- number there that tells you it could be translated as fear. And I think that that is a better way. Remember, Peter just told them, don't fear, don't be troubled. So who is the object of this fear here? It's God. So this word gentleness, and really, I, as, as much as I can understand it, I think that Peter's focus with both of these words is God and not man. And I know that that is different how we've often studied it. But, and it's true that gentleness... Uh, is important when we give a reason for the hope that we have. I don't think many of us would say, I don't know, I'm not even going to pretend to do it in a really angry way that Jesus is Lord and you better get right. And I mean, we, 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 we know that that's not going to, to win people to Christ. Uh, Peter here is talking about our submission to God and gentleness and fear. Now, gentleness can also be, be translated as humble or meek. It means us not being overly impressed by our own self-importance. It's for us to be unassuming, not demanding our way, not confident that we deserve something better, not pushing for what we deserve, not being anxious about our rights. Jesus had this gentleness, and he displayed it in his relationship to the Father. Now, this gentleness is also displayed in our relationships with one another. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is displayed in one another. Paul, Paul commands it, that we should have gentleness with one another. We should not be demanding from one another what we think we deserve. We need to be humble with, with, with one another. But I believe Peter's focus here is, is, is similar to what, how, how, how this word is used in James 1.21. Where in James 1.21, James says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. In humility receive the word implanted. That's in gentleness. It's the same Greek word. In gentleness receive the word implanted. It's in our response to God. We have a gentleness that we understand God's character. And we're trusting him in our suffering. And we're submitted to him, not demanding a different way. We're humble before him. Even as Jesus continually was gentle before the Father. I think that matches up well with the next word, reverence. Which, again, it would be better to translate, I think, more consistently as fear. It's the same Greek word it was just used. Fear. But that fear obviously isn't directed towards people. Peter has talked many times, and, 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 and a good example is 1 Peter 2.17. We honor all people, but we only fear God. So what does it mean to fear God? We've talked about that some already. It is, it's very similar. It is a synonym, a synonym, not a synonym, a synonym of exalting Christ, of hallowing Christ, of treating Christ as holy. It's to fear God is to know that the Lord is, is, is going to evaluate and reward our faithfulness. It is, it is to live life as if, as, as, uh, as some, uh, some police officers wear, a body cam, right? It's to live life as if we're going through with a body cam on or our voice being recorded. Now, that's not for the purpose of saying, oh, God is going to replay all of this, and so I'm always going to be super fearful, and I'm going to sit here in a, in a chair just kind of terrorized that I might do something wrong. It's not paralyzed, but it is sobering, right? That police officer will run into that situation knowing he, someone's watching or someone could watch. 
It's just a reminder. That's, 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 that's that sobriety of, 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 of living in fear. It's not because we're waiting for God the giant to, to smash us. But that it's living knowing that he purchases us with his son's own blood. That his spirit is living in us whom we can grieve. That he rewards those who diligently seek him. That our words will be judged. So sanctifying Christ as Lord means responding to suffering for doing good with, with submission to God, with gentleness before him, not coming before him, I demand better. With fear, with humility and sobriety, with trusting that our God is wise, but that he, he weighs and, and rewards how we spend our time. It says humble, dependent, waiting, fear of God that perfectly is exemplified by the life of Christ on earth. A trustful, sober, patient living. And so that is how we exalt Christ. We exalt Christ by pointing to Christ. We exalt Christ with our submission, demonstrated by our gentleness and fear. We exalt Christ with our, with our integrity as well. In 1 Peter 3.16, he says, and keep a good conscience. Keep and keep a good conscience. A good conscience is our personal integrity before God. It's that a good conscience means when we know that we are living appropriately with Christ is holy, that we are living under his lordship, that we are responding to his gracious reign with hopeful obedience. It's not just a good conscience in response to those who might ask a reason for the hope that we have. It's a good conscience regarding all of life. And that is how we are to go through suffering. Ready to point to Christ, submissive before Christ, with a good conscience, with integrity. To know that in our lives we're not avoiding any of his commands to us. To match up with righteous actions, his righteous action in making us righteous, to match up with righteous actions, his righteous action in making us righteous. And that is what happened when God declares us righteous. And now living in integrity, having a good conscience, is matching up our lives with what Christ has done for us. The apostles had the good conscience in Acts when they suffered. When they were brought before the Sanhedrin, they knew that they were obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Their conscience was clear. Paul talks about serving the Lord with a clear conscience. He talks about 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, how he, he calls Timothy to keep a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Those who were handed over to Satan, so they're taught not to blaspheme. The essentialness of a, of a good conscience. Do you have a good conscience, a sound conscience? Has your being united with Christ through faith, is that being evidence in your life with a, a I'm, I'm acting blameless before Christ? Not perfect, but the pattern of my life is I, I have a sound conscience. If he were to take me home today, I would look forward to that. Not just because I get to escape sin, not just because I get to escape this world, but because I know he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is how we are to go through suffering. We're also to exalt Christ by waiting for his, his vindication, by looking forward to vindication, looking forward to, his, to, to everyone knowing we're not guilty, looking forward to everyone knowing we have obeyed our, our creator. We see that at the end of verse 16. He says, and keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, as they were going through slander for their commitment to Jesus Christ, for them doing good, what we're going to see in 1 Peter 4, for, the, for them not doing bad. They were being mocked because they weren't doing the things that they used to do before salvation. So they were going through slander, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Those who revile your good behavior, they can't stand your good behavior. Now, you can see why Paul kind of started, I mean, Peter started with, uh, with well, who's going to harm you for doing good? We, we, we know that there's this aspect here where this doesn't make sense. Who would revile good behavior? It's because it is in Christ. It is because they are Christians. 
And it is, it, it is good behavior, but it's also matched with the gospel. It's good behavior that's being accompanied by pointing to Jesus Christ. It is good behavior in Christ. They know that Christ is the source of their good behavior, that their good conscience is in Christ, and so they are being reviled for being in Christ. The ways in which they were countercultural because of their obedience. Some of you are going through that. You have gone through it. You will go through it. Our kids are going to go through it if they aren't already. Now, previously, Peter has motivated the saints in 1 Peter 2.12. He said, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And here he holds out the hope that they would become God's worshipers, that they would see your good deeds, and having heard the gospel, they would glorify God in the day of visitation. And now he presents the opposite side. They're not all going to glorify God on the day of visitation. Some of them will be put to shame, said at the end of verse 16. Because those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. They will be exposed. They will be disgraced. They will be humiliated. And you could say, who? I mean, does God want people to be ashamed? Does God want people to be exposed? Does God want people to be humiliated? And there is a complexity here. As we pray for our enemies, we with Peter say, I want those who are persecuting me to glorify God on the day of visitation. But on the other hand, if, if they refuse, I want God's enemies to be put to shame. Because this is about Christ's glory. They have to be put to shame. They need to recognize that Christ is king. And they need to recognize that what is in my life, my good conscience, the, 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 the hope that I have is from him. If they aren't put to shame, there's no vindication. It's not like, like, like we ourselves need to be vindicated by a lost world. Christ deserves vindication. We look forward to vindication. We look forward to every knee on heaven and earth bowing, even if it's not in willful submission to him. Right? He is Yahweh. It's going to happen. So do you look forward to that? And I don't mean look forward to that like, man, this guy at work is giving me a hard time. I can't wait till he gets it. Right? Right? And I know that, there, that there's a complexity there. No, we want him to glorify God in the day of visitation. It's our prayer. But as we look at a world of wickedness, as we look at a world of wickedness, we want that world of wickedness to be put to shame, to be exposed So we've seen this morning, we rest in God's plan while suffering for doing good. We exalt Christ when we're suffering for doing good. We hollow him in our hearts, and out of this comes a good conscience. It comes our submission to him. It comes a readiness to explain our hope. It comes our, our eagerness for his name to be vindicated, really, which is part of his holiness extending to all humanity. I mean, so that we all see it. But we also reflect on the source of your suffering. We reflect on the source of our suffering. In 1 Peter 3.17, he says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I believe that Peter's cautioning them here. You know, he's writing to a large place, we talked about this, with a diverse number of churches. Perhaps he's being cautious, assuming that all of them are suffering for doing good. So, he warns them. It's better, it's better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Don't assume that your suffering will end in blessing. You must ask yourself, why am I suffering? So not all suffering is for doing right. Peter's already mentioned this. He, he mentioned it in 1 Peter 2.20. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? He knew that that was possible. They could sin and be harshly treated, well, that was not going to get them any reward from the Lord. It's what they deserved. Or we're going to see, see that again in 1 Peter 4.15. It's a really interesting verse. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Peter's concerned that they do examine themselves as they're going through suffering, as they're being slandered, as they're being maligned. Well, why is this happening? And perhaps we may have wondered that, if not we a will, with 
our kids. When they come home from, from school and say, oh, they're making fun of me for, for, for being a Christian, we want to know, what did you say? How did you say it? Are you a troublesome meddler? Uh, or is it because you're doing good? Is it because you're proclaiming the gospel? So Peter has this concern there. So I don't know if that's because he knew some of these churches, there's suffering going on, that it was deserved. Maybe he's just cautioning them. Not all suffering is evidence of God's blessing. And we know that. Those who receive blessing from the Lord suffer for doing what's right. So obvious here, don't look forward to reward if you're joining in wickedness. But Peter is also talking about another source. He, he does want them to say, is that source from what you're doing or because of your obedience? Is it because you're sanctifying Christ as Lord or because you're not obeying him as Lord? But he's not assuming that all their suffering is their own fault. He says in verse 17, For it is better if God shall will it so. And it is literally in the Greek, if the will of God wills it so. It is better if the will of God wills it so that you suffer for doing good. Suffering is dispensed by the Lord. We don't have to try to get suffering. Our part is to do good. Our part is to hollow Christ as Lord. Our part is to obey his commands. Our part is to fulfill his commission. If you are doing those things and not suffering, it's not like you're doing something wrong. You don't have to be suffering for doing good. This is the will of the Lord, the will of, the, the will of God who wills it. The same extent of suffering is not guaranteed to all Christians. For those of us who have been born here in America, who have come to America, we're going to suffer differently than other saints around the world. Suffering varies according to God's plan for which family you were born into for which place you live, for what time in human history you lived. Peter's encouraging them that God is ultimately behind how much you suffer when you're suffering for doing good. And there's encouragement there. It's really very similar to as he began this section. We get to rest in God's plan. So reflect on the source of your suffering. We serve a sovereign God who can prevent suffering or he can send suffering as we do good. Peter's saying, don't let it be for suffering, for doing evil. We must pursue doing right. We must pursue doing good. We're not supposed to pursue suffering. This morning, if you are here, how are your feelings about Christians? How are your feelings about Christians? Perhaps there's some here this morning who don't really know the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? You're kind of looking at them and their allegiance to Jesus Christ. They're exalting him as Lord. Their, 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 their hope, their, their good conscience. And perhaps you're one of those who are slandering them. Perhaps, and you may not even say it, and maybe it's because you're in a Christian family. You may not even be out loud slandering, but you're like, I don't want what they have. I can't wait to get away from this. Peter has a solid, stern warning here. Don't slander what is beautiful. Don't slander the peoples of God, allegiance to Jesus Christ, because you will be put to shame. You will be put to shame. The lines are super clear here. Which side are you on? Are you one of those who have sanctified Christ as Lord? Is Christ the Lord of your heart? Especially, I think about young people here. Are you just kind of, are, are, are you with your parents in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you kind of looking and saying, well, my parents are really tightly wound? I, 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 I don't really get why they're so worried about a good conscience. I don't really get why they're submitting to Jesus Christ. I don't even understand why they would obey what has been saying here about submitting to the government or, or, or wives submitting to their husbands or, 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 or what these, the, these commands for husbands are. I don't want this. The warning here for you today is you will be put to shame. 
Christ is returning, and you will be exposed as being on the wrong side of human history. Put your hope in Jesus Christ today. Go to him, and there is salvation in him. There's salvation in no other name except that of Jesus Christ. And he is willing for any of you, and not just youth, any of you this morning, if you are on the outside looking in and saying, saying, really, I've got all kinds of problems here with Jesus Christ. Don't be put to shame by him. Come and be saved. Have this hope. Be on the winning side of human history. Come to Jesus for forgiveness. Exalt him as Lord in your hearts. and You will forever be with him, blessed by him. Come and be slandered. Come and be maligned for Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. And if that is not you this morning, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I would love to talk to you and share with you the hope that we who are in Jesus Christ have. Let's pray. Father, we see in uh, your word that you've preserved for us this morning that there is a complexity in living in this world. And that not everyone suffers the same way. That some will applaud our good deeds by your sovereign plan, and your sovereign plan will allow others of us uh, to go through just such horrible mistreatment and rejection, even by family. Lord, your, your ways are not our ways. Fathers, we think about our loved ones, even all of us here this morning. Our desire is that everyone would be joined together to glorify God in the day of visitation. We, we, we want everyone to be your worshipers, Lord. And yet, Father, there is this, uh, this, this hard line drawn that, that we know that there's going to be those who are put to shame. Who, who revile what your Son is accomplishing in our hearts, Lord. And we do come before you, oh Lord, even as I think of my, my little girls, Lord. Lord, we, we, we pray that there would be an increasing humbling in, in, in the hearts of our children, in the hearts of our family members, that, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty that there is in the good deeds that Christ is accomplishing in us, that they would see our excellent conduct. And we pray, Father, for more opportunities to share the reason for the hope that we have. Oh, Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you for this hope, that we are not like those who don't have hope, but you've given us this, this, this perfect hope, this, 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 this hope that is reserved in heaven for us, this hope that is anchored in to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, into the reign of Jesus Christ, into the return of Jesus Christ. Well, we thank you, Father, that you have guaranteed this with your word and that Jesus Christ is returning. Our hope is not in vain. Oh, Lord, we pray, Father, that we would be people who go through suffering according to your plan uh, with with submission, with this gentleness towards you, with a, with, with, with a quiet tongue, with a fearing you, knowing that you are wise and that you're a rewarder, that we would be wary of your evaluation, not in trepidation, but in wisdom. Lord, that we would have the evidence of Christ being manifested in our lives as, as we live with a sound conscience, Lord with a good conscience. Father, we want what Christ has, has done. We want who Christ is to be manifested in our good behavior, Lord, that we would be, be known as those kinds of people. So we ask in this upcoming week, Lord, we pray that, that, that you would give us opportunities for good deeds. We would be zealous for good deeds, that we wouldn't make, in a sense, an artificial distinction that, 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 that words need to come after actions or actions before words, Lord, but that we'd be these unified people who speak of Christ's excellence and, and the hope that we have as quickly as we are to, 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 to help, Lord. Help us, Father, to be unified so that Christ's beauty is seen. And may you rescue those around us rather than put them to shame. And yet, Lord, we are comforted by the fact that Christ's ultimate uh, exaltation is coming and that his people will be vindicated. Father, if we pray this for ourselves, uh, how much more for our brothers and sisters around the world? Lord, these are... Uh, 
we feel the weight of times changing in America. Um, Lord, help us not to be those who fear what they fear. Mm-hmm. And yet, Lord, we think of many um, uh, who, uh, Father, keep their hope strong in you. Keep their hope strong in you. I don't know what it means to, 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 to pray for the world of persecuted people. There's so many. Lord, keep their hope strong in you. Keep their, their conduct good. Keep them submitting to you. Keep, keep them believing and preserve them until they see your face. In Jesus' name, amen.